Hello. You can't rewrite history, Doctor Who tells his companion Barbara in the 1963 story The Aztecs. Not one line. Being a show about time travel, history, Earth history in particular, has played an important part in Doctor Who. Early stories would alternate between those set in historical locales, such as Marco Polo, the Reign of Terror, and exotic alien planets like the Kizamonas or the Sensorites, and elements from the two would never mix. Nowadays, we rarely, if ever, see a story that doesn't feature some kind of exotic creature. Indeed, since early 2005, every adventure set in the past has featured a fantastical element to go alongside the historical setting, an early example being the Gelf in 2005's The Inquired Dead. Today, I'm joined as ever by Matt to discuss the evolution of the historical story in Doctor Who over the last 50-odd years. I'm Leon, and you're listening to Never Cruel or Cowardly. So, Matt, going back to that line I just quoted from the Aztecs, do you think the Doctor had a point? Well, though, you should never interfere. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's what um, pushes the dynamic of the whole story, and that's one of the things I like about it. They has a real sense of moral conflict at the centre, that on the one hand, you've got Barbara, who's saying that it's imperative they interfere, and, you know, they can't allow human sacrifice to take place. And on the other hand, you've got... The Doctor says that history must not be changed. That is an absolute. I suppose the possible weakness, and correct me if I'm wrong in terms of the facts of the story, is that does the Doctor ever really define why history must not be changed? I don't think he did. I think he just said, no, you can't change it. You're not allowed. Um, He doesn't even, I don't think, go into the potential consequences of it. I think it's just taken as fact that all history is set, you can't change it. And and I suppose, pardon me, I suppose the problem with that is that everything is history. What we're living now is history. It may not be history yet, but it's history. And similarly, um, you know, when he meets the Daleks and the Thals, that's history. It's their history. So why can he change that history, but not the history of Earth? and particularly the history before 1963 or 1964 or whatever. That's a very good point. Any ideas why? Apart well, from narratively well, speaking. Well, <laughs> if we go outside of the narrative for the moment, it's obvious. It's, it's, because if, um, it's because we know that history, ostensibly Doctor Who is supposed to be our world, even more so at that point. Um, I suppose there's a schism later on in the 70s with the unit stories. You get more of a sense of it being a parallel world. Uh, But at that point, it's supposed to be our world that Barbara and Ian have been removed from. And so to contradict history would be to contradict the history we know, Um, whereas the Dalek history is completely fictitious. So my little pet theory on this is that it's not so much history that you can't change not one line but your own personal history so barbara has taught history and she understands that the aztecs uh, were this race that did human sacrifice and her changing that will actually change her history if you like so the stuff she taught would not exist anymore so you end up in a whole paradox so what the doctor is doing is avoiding a potential paradox in barbara's life by saying you can't change history He's not going into the nuances because 
well, maybe he thought she wouldn't understand or something, because he was quite patronising in those days, wasn't he? I suppose the simple answer is that the Doctor insisting that history should not be changed provides that great moral conflict. I don't think it is in narrative terms ever properly resolved. In fact, if we fast forward to the pyramids of Mars, the, the opposite position is stated. It's imperative we interfere. So is the argument made, being made in Pyramids of Mars is that Doctor Who becomes part of history, or Doctor Who and the Companion, and yeah. basically Sarah Jane saying, well, we know that Earth sorts itself out now because I've come from 1980 and it's still there. And the Doctor goes, ah, but what happens if I take you forward into this alternative timeline where we didn't do anything? Yeah, well, in philosophical terms, you could get yourself in a real kerfuffle. Because how does a doctor know that having entered the timeline, they are now significant? If Sutek succeeded before, you know, that suggests that the time, history, is constantly shifting. So how does he know which choice to make? How does he know which choice leads to a positive outcome? I mean, I suppose at that point he's saying... He's not necessarily saying we have to act because if we don't act, Sutek will win. He's more saying we're part of events now. And our entry into events is shown by the fact that I take you forward and Sutek has destroyed the world. So that's a really interesting philosophical point, isn't it? Because we're all part of history, as you said before, and we only ever do the best we can. So the Doctor can't know whether what he's doing will lead to a positive outcome, just like none of us really do. I think um, this is maybe, maybe why, in narrative terms and in terms of making the show, you know, they have just used the TARDIS as a magic door and they've kept away from, you know, time travel for so long. Because you do tie yourself up in knots very easily. It's a very difficult thing to insert in a story and have work well. So I'm thinking of maybe that, I'm trying to think if there's an example actually off the top of my head where the um, the drama has come out of the fact that they need to reset history to what it was. I'm thinking, was there anything in the time meddler along those lines? Because that seems like the obvious one. Well, it's more, it's more or less of resetting history, I suppose. It's more protective of history. Isn't it? Yes, I think that's what I meant. So, yeah, absolutely. So they've got to... I mean, the time meddler, I've, just, I've got it here, actually. I, I had it up. It's the ninth and final story of season two of Doctor Who. And that's it's right. got significance because it was the first pseudo-historical, defined as a historical story with science fiction elements, um, which we'll be talking about later. But I suppose but which we seem to have stumbled on early. Um, I suppose, yeah, they're being protective of history, aren't they? And again, I suppose that feeds into the Aztecs. This idea, it's still the idea of the Doctor's protective of an official history. He protects the time stream in some way. Although, again, it just all goes out the window if he goes to Marinus. You know? Um, It's history. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe it's history he knows and he's got this particular interest in Earth uh, for whatever reason. So he has to protect his known history. So he's always protecting his own knowledge, so we say. So um, there was an interesting idea in um, a natural history 
after Kate Orman, John Blum, um, aged Doctor novel back in the back in the day, uh, where they talk about this idea of your time stream being manipulated almost behind your back, and you have no idea this is happening because your memories change as your right. So your your memory actually changes, and memory is a weird thing anyway because. It's not perfect, is it? And people have different memories of exactly the same situation. So maybe maybe there is a doctor out there that's constantly messing around with our timelines and we're just completely unaware of it. So maybe instead of history, this episode should have been about time. Yes, I just that's, the thing. that's the thing that makes Doctor Who so difficult if you start considering time or talking about time. If you talk about history and time, these two things are linked. Yeah. But they were quite... So early, early Doctor, anyway, they, they were quite strict. To, well, they seemed to do a lot of research around um, the stories they were telling. Um, yeah. I think I read that um, for Marco Polo, for example, um, John Lucarotti based it on uh, Polo's memoirs. Right. Um, and I think um, the character Ping Cho that, that Susan befriends um, that was actually based on a real story of Marco Polo uh, taking this young princess to marry um, one of Kubla Khan's uh, grandnephew. The twist well, the, being that when they got there, he had already died. So, but. Well, the, I suppose the thing is that there was still that educative element. So the twin things that it was supposed to be was it was supposed to be history and science, wasn't it? So originally, yes. before the Daleks, if you think of the science strand, before the Daleks turned up, It was very much about, you know, you were going to go to another planet and something would happen and the Doctor would say, oh, there's been a strange effect on gravity and use that to explain gravity to his companions. I suppose that was the idea. And similarly, a big thing of the Aztecs, for example, would be having as authentic as possible a representation of Aztec culture and society. That's that's right. This kind of started to go out the window quite early on there, didn't it? Yeah, well, we, as we mentioned, the time meddler, you know. Well, even um, before that, you look, at, you look at the Romans, um, yeah. which was just a comedy at the end of the day. Well, um, I think the thing about Doc 2 is you can, you can see the vestiges of things lasting. Cause, so the thing about the historical is you just wonder if it was around for as long as it was. We think of them, the pure historical, we think of them disappearing... Let's see, when was the last pure historical before Black Orchid? Uh, the Highlanders. The Highlanders, so the second Doctor. So they were around for a while. They mm. were around till, was it 66 then? Yeah, it's 66, isn't it? Because so the first, the first three, four years. Mm. Um, it's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting they were, how... They were a, a vestige of something from the original pitch document. But they did change, didn't they? I mean, you look at the very early ones, the Lucarotti ones in, exam, uh, in particular... There seems mm-hmm. to be a lot of uh, detailed research, and they try to strike for accuracy. And yet, at the yeah. moment Dennis Spooner comes in, um, or it feels like when Whitaker left and Spooner took over, there was a little bit more, um, shall we say, playing to the popular myths, or not being quite as stringent to the, uh, the historical documents. So you got the well, ones that's a flat-out parody. Mm-hmm. And our first example as well as of the Doctor actually being, as we were saying earlier, of the Doctor being involved in history because he kind of causes the Great Fire of London in that that's, that story. Well, do you think, do you think, uh, do you mean the Nero's fire, not the Great Fire yeah, of ne- London? 
No, you're sorry, the Great Fire. I'm thinking of Rome. The fire of Rome the, burning down. For the Great yes. Fire of London, aren't you? Peter Davison. Well, no, that'd be silly in the Nero. <laughs> are you pinpointing there the beginning of the mentoring what you might call theme park history or movie history. Because I was thinking today about how one of the things about Victory of the Daleks is it's not really the Daleks invade World War Two. It's more like the Daleks invade the Great Escape or the Bridge Over the River Kwai. Or I've got to think of a better Second World War film. But you know what I mean. Have you, have you got one playing there? Something started playing. An advert. I think you should leave that in. Um, so is it more like, or I'll give you a, a good edit, an easy edit. What you pinpointed there when you're talking about Dennis Spooner kind of moving it away from the educational stuff maybe is maybe is the beginning perhaps of Doc 2 accessing theme park history and popular media history rather than real history, for want of a better term, although there's no real history. So I was thinking today about Victory of the Daleks. It's not the Daleks and Doctor Who go to World War II. It's the Daleks and Doctor Who go to a World War II movie. I think you're absolutely right, I think. I think it certainly, from probably the Romans onwards, became very much, yeah, uh, Hollywood history, I quite like that. Hollywood. Do, do you know, did you hear that Brian Hales, who wrote, let's see, let's see. The Ice Warriors. The Ice Warriors and the Seeds of Death. Yes, that was another Not Ice Warriors story. Um, he was going to do one called The Nazis. And that got really? quite. Yeah, yeah, it was called The Nazis. <laughs> and what, what year was that planned in? 1966. Ooh, and it was just going to be William Hartnell. According to the Wikipedia the wiki for the unmade episodes, the centre, it got quite late on in development. Okay. The sentiment was, I'm quoting directly someone else's work, the sentiment was that the events were too close to the present day, i.e. 1966. I think you're right. Um, I know stuff that I've read about uh, sort, of, sort of culture in those days, 20 years, in fact, it's, it's just over 20 years, wasn't it? It's not long. It's not long. Not you know, long at all, no. Well, well, this is the thing. Funnily enough, I've been reading a. I've read a great book about Dad's Army by Graham McCann. It was written in two thousand and one, I think, mm-hmm. and it was uh, re-released because there's been a film. There's a lot in there about their tension about is it too soon? Is it too soon to have a sitcom about that? You could imagine similarly. Is it? It's a family, children's. Populist show is—is is that is that how you discuss the war, or does it need to be played for today, or a, a big with a capital B drama series? Absolutely, it's interesting. The Doctor's never really um, looked at either of the first two world wars. The first two world wars, there you go. That's a bit uh, of a permonition for you, isn't it? Um, the two world wars is any great detail. Mm. But yeah, I think Doctor Who fans would actually get a lot from this. Dad's Army, Graham McCann. I didn't know that um, John Pert, who was actually offered, accepted, and then turned down Captain Mannering. Oh, I didn't know he'd accepted. I knew he'd been offered. Yeah, he'd accepted, apparently. He'd accepted. But he was having... There's some speculation in the book um, 
about how he maybe was having a nice time in America. But I think I think I certainly enjoyed it because I love all the behind the scenes television stuff, and mm. it's very strong on the development of the series and just little things like that. I didn't realize that originally um, the producer of Dad's Army wanted. Now let's see, was that Jeremy Croft? I forgot that wrong. David Croft and anyway, the, the producer wanted the credits to actually show clips from newsreel from yes. the war. And he was he was um overridden because uh they just felt it was too close to the knuckle. And you end up with that iconic animation, so happy accidents. But you know, the Nazis, yeah. It's 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 interesting. Not one I mean, to revisit as far as I'm concerned <laughs> not one for me I'm afraid uh, I've, ju- I've just had a look at that author he's done quite a few actually has he? He's done one on- yeah he's done one on Yes Minister one on Open All Hours oh really I'm going to check him out Graham McCann great writer Graham McCann now can I talk about the time travellers yeah what's the time travellers well, it's a Doctor Who novel from the BBC line of books from 2005. In fact, it came out after the new series had started, and it's by Simon Gurrier. And apologies to Simon if I've mispronounced that. But it's got right. ideas that throw back to the Aztecs and why the Doctor was saying that one line of history couldn't be changed. And the implication is, well, he says explicitly it's not that... It can't, history can't be changed, it's that history shouldn't be changed. And the idea, and I've not read the book, but this is a fascinating idea, and I'm getting my information from a blog post by Phil Sandifer at Tardis Eruditorum, but the idea is that the Tardises, the Time Lord Tardises, have chameleon circuits so they can observe history and view, view screens so they can observe history. And they don't have to go out. And if they open those doors and go out, they will change history, which they're not supposed to do. So that's why the Doctor was so against changing history. And he couldn't really or didn't want to express that to Barbara, but he finally tells her that. And then he goes on to talk about there are people who will notice that and perhaps come and take action. So it foreshadows the war games. So the hint and the of the timeboards, and it also foreshadows. He says he's going to have to protect Susan from that, and perhaps leave her somewhere. And Barbara notes that she'll never leave him voluntarily. So it foreshadows and clears up that rather difficult sequence at the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth, where he leaves her. Right. So, so it kind of um, gives an explanation for why. Um, as soon as the opportunity came about, he let Susan stay there. And that was, so she becomes part of history and I guess unnoticeable to the Time Lords. Yeah. And also, but, also well, explains, yeah. But to protect her, I think, I think the idea is that he's leaving her behind. So yeah, she's part of history, but she's not, as I suppose it must be, is not as big an intervention. I mean, I'd like to track it down, but I found out about it by reading the blog and I thought it was an interesting idea you know no i um, had a copy i did read that and you did there was some good stuff in it um if I, I, we're going back about 10 years or so aren't we um mm. yeah there was there was lots of ideas about um time traveling there and i think 
it involved them coming across some sort of invented time travel. Um, yeah, yeah. If I remember rightly. So yeah, so um, basically that that goes back to what we were saying. Um, was was that line in the Aztecs just a simplification of what was really going on? And it sounds like that that book kind of uh, gives some further explanation for that, albeit right. nearly forty years later. But you know, having thought about it, I very much believe what it is. Well, it's either it's one of two things. It's either um, maintaining the educational sanctity, if you like, because it was supposed to be that Doctor was going to teach people about history, or partially it could be about a narrative thing that you can't have, that it opens up a whole can of worms if Doctor Who, the Doctor, goes around changing history willy-nilly. What just occurred to me um, is how you, well, how Sanguia describes the TARDIS as an observation vessel almost. Yeah. Um, and I, but it, it just reminded me of, um, it would make a great um, uh, schools programme whereby this guy travels around in a, in a in a box that disguises itself when it lands and then he opens the monitor up and it zooms into some historical uh, uh, piece that's going on. It, it could work quite well. He comments, like the teacher with his black Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. So he could, he could zoom back into the TARDIS console and he could go, ah, look at what Marco Polo is doing at the moment kind of thing. So uh, I suppose... I suppose more often nowadays the TARDIS is talked about like a magic door, the cupboard that mm. takes you to Narnia. But maybe, maybe it's personification, well, not personification, maybe a better metaphor for it, if it had carried on in the original vein, would be the classroom, the magic classroom. The magic the t- classroom, yeah. Places yeah. where things can be explained, that takes you on the best field trips in the universe. And that's what it would be. It would all best be like, an, it, it, he wouldn't be a, a doctor, he'd be an anthropologist. Yeah, yeah, the anthropologist. Maybe, yeah. oh, phone BBV. Anyway, <laughs> they still exist. What I was going to say, to, to continue with that idea of the school's programme where you're just observing, and then <laughs> someone, one episode, says, what happens if we open the door? while we're here. That's exactly what Doctor is, isn't it? It's actually opening the door of the observation yeah. vessel, which means uh, the Doctor and his companions actually become part of history. And you move towards these more pseudo-historicals that we were sort of broaching on with the Time Warrior. The yeah. Time Warrior, the Time Medal, sorry. Oh, we're all perfect yeah. with them for a moment. Um, and I think we were discussing earlier as well, there's a way when Dennis Spooner became a story editor, um, things started to change slightly. It wasn't um, we weren't so focused on historical accuracy. And you've got shows like uh, the Romans, the Myth Makers, the Gunfighters, which uh, famously is, it actually ends the same way as the uh, the Hollywood movie uh, Gunfighter, the OK Club, rather than what actually happened historically. Um, and you mentioned this historical Hollywood that Doctor Who starts exploring. Mm. And then that be- that reaches its logical conclusion, I think, uh, a couple of years ago with Robert of Sherwood. Mm. Well, I suppose I suppose we've used a metaphor of the magic door, the magic cupboard. We've used a contrasting metaphor of the classroom. You could, to encompass a whole show, you could use the metaphor of the library. And it's at the beginning, the Doctor is browsing non-fiction and fiction. And then 
it just all goes over to fiction, if you know what I mean. And um, we talked about them stepping into stepping into movies, into other TV yes. shows, stepping into stories. I mean, I suppose the subversive thing about Robots of Sherwood, if it can be called subversive, is they step into a story, the Doctor mocks it, and it turns out the story is true. Yeah, which is really, really interesting, because there was no real explanation given for that, was there? It was very much... It was very much, yeah, okay, this is a story, this isn't real, this isn't This isn't how Robin Hood was. And histori- if, if you're talking historical accuracy, then that, that's completely thrown out the window with that episode. Doctor Who might as well have landed in an episode of Maid Marian and Her Merry Men, if you remember that uh, old TV show from years ago. Yeah, but maybe the term historical accuracy is an oxymoron. Maybe that's the thing no. about That's the great thing about robots of Sherwood, potentially. That isn't it kind of the ultimate in showing the history? I mean, the story bit of history is as important as. Well, it's all encompassing. There's no, you know, we, we talk about fiction and non-fiction, but as soon as as soon as we've exper- experienced something, it's gone. You know, our memory is fallible. Memory Absolutely. Is, so what about collect, so maybe, memory, which is what history is, is very malleable, isn't it? Yeah, so maybe that's the ultimate expression of the fallibility of history that that is taught as something that really happened. Maybe that's the ultimate expression that you have a legend and you go, Oh, maybe the legend's true. The thing that the thing that everyone knows is wrong. What if that were correct? And I think that I, idea of, of oh the legend was true is perhaps enough. And I ex- wonder Yeah, this. I agree with you. I I wonder if the way it was done though was a little bit too subtle because I didn't I didn't leave it leave that episode with that idea really forefront in my mind and I think that's a bit of a shame because it's a fascinating idea but it was only really hinted at and it's only when you start talking about the show afterwards mm. that that kind of becomes prevalent the really question what you're left... is... sorry what are you going to say no, go. well okay. I guess what you're left with is uh, oh they've done Robin Hood with a, with a bunch of robots in isn't, isn't that oh so typical of Doctor Who these days it's like you know, you can't do Charles Dickens without having these gaseous monsters in. You can't do Shakespeare without um, having whatever was in the Shakespeare code. And you can't even do Agatha Christie without a giant wasp. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the problem with the pseudo-historical is it's drifted so far from being about history. It has the trappings of history. Um, although, having said that, I've got Time Warrior, the Time Warrior down here as an example of the pseudo-historical done well. And that doesn't really tell you much about history. That's very true, actually. So, so maybe, maybe the newer stuff is, is actually better in that sense because, you know, I think people did learn a lot from Agatha, about Agatha Christie. Yeah. Um, and I think similarly, um, the Dickens episode, there was a lot about Dickens in there. Yeah. Actually, now I've had a chance to think about it a little bit more. I, I still think um, the Paul Cornell two-part, uh, Human Nature and um, Family of Blood, I think is a really nice historical, a pseudo-historical. I think that works really, really well. Yeah. Why? 
because it's it's a wonderful setting and the doctor when he's john smith actually does come out with some comments that are less favorable favorable in a modern society and I, so you, I think you feel there's an element of representation yeah I suppose there's the aspect that the companion is a person of colour and she has to take the role of a serving girl. Which I find, yes. And I think that's... Some people that, were that, very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, um, but I think it, it, we were made aware of it in the show that, that there was a problem with that. Mm. I don't think it was, none of that was brushed under the carpet. The question is whether that should... That, should, that deserves... I suppose for me the question is whether it deserves a whole, more, more attention. Um... So that that is based on his Virgin New Adventures book. That's Human. right, yeah. Yeah. I think maybe the reason that story in both novel and television form is so successful is because the setting he's chosen actually represents the Doctor's conflict. Yeah, maybe because you're right, yeah. It's the eve of the First World War. And as with the Second World War, you've got those people who want to get involved. Mm. I think for the First World War, the representation is that those people were in the majority. And then you've got those people who are less keen. And it's it's sort of the coming storm, isn't it? Because the Doctor himself is on the eve of a conflict. You know, he's chosen to hide to try and avoid conflict. And so I suppose almost you could say there's an inevitability about it that the family of blood are going to force the issue. And it's almost like, you know, there was a sense of that time. If you read the histories, it's presented, there's a sense that um, it was inevitable. People were trying to avoid coming conflict and tensions, but something was going to happen. I think so, you see, yeah, the, the start of the First World War, as I understand it, was was really the result of, a, of an arms race, and it was inevitable that it was going to happen. Yeah, but people were trying to avoid it. And, yes, and of course. Quote, there's some quote, and I must dig it out, there's some quote about a politician making a speech, isn't there, and saying the lights are going out all over Europe and we may not see them lit again in our lifetime. That was the First some, World War, wasn't it? That, that was the First World War, yeah, and I remember... There was, there was an amazing... Oh, no, I'm going to get lost on this. There was a really good um, small press comic came out all about this. Oh, Thingy uh, Sunrise? Terrible Sunrise, was it called? Right, I'll have to Google. Right, the lights are going out all over your... Ah, the lamps are going out all over your... <coughs> we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. That was the line, yeah. Or in so Edward Gray remarked to a friend on the eve of Britain's entry into the First World War. So I think what's great about that as a historical or a pseudo-historical is the Doctor's, you know, conflict, the, the way that violence is approaching, the conflict is approaching, is mirrored in yeah. the setting. The, in the setting and, it gets specifically that setting of a school where children are being trained to fire machine guns yeah exactly so So, maybe go on you're saying that the the the, um the setting actually and and the time it was set in thematically resonates with the 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 plot which makes it feel as if it wasn't just picked just because oh let's do a first world war story 
No, I mean picked for for sensible reasons. Yeah, and Paul Cornell is clearly a very, very intelligent writer. You know, yes. in terms of the decisions he makes, um, which maybe and you know, never cruel or cowardly listeners, correct me if I've got this wrong because I'm working from memory and I don't think I've seen it since the eighties when it was transmitted. Transmitted. Uh, so if you contrast it with say the King's Demons, Peter mm-hmm. Davison, where it seems a bit more arbitrary. The historical setting. That's a pseudo-historical. It's got the mastery. It's got chameleon. Uh, but it just seems arbitrary. They could be anywhere. It's like window dressing. Theme park history. So, yeah, so that's the difference. So, so what we're, what we're favouring is some proper narrative reason for the setting rather than it just... Or just something that... Yeah, something that, something thematically, something that resonates, something that has depth, that adds to the story. There's very... Uh, when I was actually thinking about this before before we kick this whole thing off, um, I was amazed how few stories there are set in the past, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I did wonder. I was, I was putting my washing out in the garden, thinking about Doctor. As I you actually do. And I wondered if... I was wondering about the reasons for that, and I wondered if part of it was, if you're on the planet Zog, you can make your own rules. Well, you but haven't got... You've got to, you know, apparently for going back to human nature, I think there was some issue about it was either Marmite or or mayonnaise, Hellman's mayonnaise, some brand of something, and someone pointed out it didn't exist. Right. No, so that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have, You've got all your research to do if you want it to be accurate. Although, how important is it to get those historical details right? Is it enough That's, to have feelings and get children or interest people or entertain them or is it important you get every single historical detail right and then you come down to representation particularly in what we've seen recently in this continual rise of uh, what's been called as the celebrity historical mm-hmm. so this for me started really with charles dickens appearing in um in the unquiet dead and then later on shakespeare appearing and you, you, or, or, or it started with Time Lash and H.G. Wells. Oh, of course. How could I forget? And forget or Time it Lash. started with Marco Polo. Well, arguably, yes. I, I will stand corrected on that. So, so it started but with what Marco Polo. Celebrity Rickle. Do we mean that someone famous appears, someone well known from history appears, or do we mean the treatment of them? Because you would mean the treatment. Maybe it's the treatment, because I think The Empire Dead was very much, hey, look, it's Charles Dickens, cue round of applause from the audience. Yeah. Um, particularly as it was played by Simon Callow, who uh, famously uh, has a one-man show as Charles Dickens. Yeah. So, so yeah. very much this is, a, this is a gentleman that's associated most with the role, uh, very great coup for the show to actually get someone of his stature in. Mm. Um, so you can imagine the, the representation of Dickens um, with someone like Hallow playing the role. Um, they were very careful with Hallow represented him. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably wanted to show his foibles as well as his, um, his good points. Uh, but then more recently there's been some criticism around uh, Churchill. Mm-hmm. In in the Matt Smith era, um, and I will say I don't know that much about Churchill's history, but 
He's a controversial figure. He's a controversial figure, but there's a whole myth about him, isn't there? Because, you know, he's seen in popular representation to have saved the world kind of thing, or saved England, or saved Britain during the Second World War. Well, he's repeatedly voted as greatest Britain in history. And I think there's a lot of revisionist thinking now, sort of saying that, okay, yeah, that's all right, but he's not that great a guy that we all made out, and he's made some controversial decisions over the world, over the years. What's Doctor Who's responsibility for that? Well, not, 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 not what he did, but, you know, the representation of it. Well, I think, I think there's two things really here, which is, number one, if you, it's a great man of history idea, which is that, you know, there are these great men in history or these great people in history and they push history forward and it's due to them that things happen. So that's problematic because it kind of ignores all the other histories and the contributions of the people whose names aren't well known. Um, and the second thing is there's the ethics of presenting someone in a very two-dimensional way, you know, and perpetuating a specific idea about a real person. So Churchill in Doctor Who is kind of this avuncular figure. And in real life, whether you're a fan of Churchill or not, or whether you need to be a fan or not, he's a far more complex figure. So should you be perpetuating this simplistic, populist representation of anyone? That's the question. And this goes back to what you were saying about the the Robots of Sherwood episode, where you're clearly representing the myth as being true. And is, yeah. is, is that what Doctor Who is doing? Is, is, is Doctor Who just perpetuating myths around people? And does well, it have a responsibility to not to? Does it have a, a, a responsibility to examine history warts and all? Well, I think, I think the funny thing is, I think the fun, funny thing is that actually the robots of Sherwood, as I said, that was really nice because potentially it does present history as far more complex than people perhaps realise by saying, oh, this thing we thought was completely untrue is actually true, you know. We don't we don't have a precise view of history, you know, and history is something that is argued over. I think this is the this is the problem really for me. And it's it, it goes back to this educative element and it goes back to what responsibility do you have to young, impressionable people, a sector of your audience is going to be always going to be young and impressionable with a family show like Doctor Who. And I think you could sidestep it. The other thing is, you know, there are all these hidden histories. There's the um, histories of the kind of the ordinary people who lived through the Second yeah. World. It would be great to see, be, see some of those. For example, have you ever heard of a, a writer called Connie Willis? No, no. Um, it's fiction. Just these great stories about these field historians who are time travellers and they, they're students and they travel back from the future to actually live history for some time as part of their studies at university. And there's one great story. The first one I read is called Firewatch and it's about this guy who has travelled back from the future. He's a field historian. Um, And he's part of the Firewatch on St. Paul's Cathedral. (coughs) 
St. Paul's Cathedral in London during the Second World War, and the Firewatch were the people who had to put out fires. They were trying to protect the listed buildings, the important buildings. Mm. So a bomb might come down and not detonate or detonate nearby, but a fire would start. And so they're there as Firewatch to try and protect those buildings because it's seen as important that St. Paul's Cathedral, for example, exists after the war. It's a heritage thing. But the problem is that they have to learn how to fit in in history. And so, for example, in the fire, there are some details about this guy that are a bit sus and his voice is maybe a bit strange, even though he's trying to put on the right accent. And it's a time when people are very suspicious of anyone who seems a bit different, you know, because of talk of spies. And so it's really examining, it's a very imaginative way of examining history and also Mm. the history of ordinary people. You know, it's not about the royal family. It's not about Churchill. It's about those people manning the home front in some way, in the same way that Dad's army was. Which is interesting, because I I wonder if Doctor Who's ever actually done that. And it's something it does so well on other planets. You know, the Doctor will be with the little people and start start the evolution. Mm. And yet... It doesn't seem to do the same thing with our planet. Yeah, I suppose the problem is you can't start a revolution. Well, you know? I was about to say, for quite obvious reasons. But Yeah, yeah. but maybe it would be great to have, you know, uh, I've got down here in my notes, horrible histories, children love history. Maybe it would be great to, to have a, a stray historical, which we keep banging the drum for but to have a straight historical without a celebrity or to have a pseudo historical well they have had pseudo historicals without celebrities um i'm trying to think of an example now haven't well yes they have yeah the girl who died the woman who lived oh that's true yeah i adored but you know but that could have easily been that could have easily been you know they arrive another tribe rather than another group rather than um, aliens are going to slaughter this village and this village can't fight and the doctor doesn't mm. want to get involved and Clara talks him round. Ah, oh, that's very true actually, yeah. And, it would, and you examine, you maybe use it to um, examine that period of history and examine that culture a little bit. I suppose the problem with a straight historical is it's harder to use timey-wimey sort of wave the sonic screwdriver solutions and it's harder to you know you would have an ethical problem there an ethical dilemma in terms of well why should one tribe survive and one group survive yeah. and another you know yeah i see what you mean yeah it'd be interesting to explore mm. and it'd be nice if maybe when chibnall takes over they do some, something like that um who knows i think they probably it, have- it, Probably, it, um, and I think it would be um, it'd be interesting. I think it's it's an avenue not yet explored in the show, or not although, explored. Although lots of people are going to now write in and say, "Yeah, chilly." Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is the interesting thing about well, one of the things about discussing Doctor Who, it's like the Time Warrior, where I go right, you know, I'm writing my notes and I go right, I need a pseudo historical. Ah, oh, Time Warrior is a good one, and then I'm like, hang on, there's this time travel element so it's just a hard show to pin down mm. which is to its credit 
Yeah, that's what we enjoy about it, isn't it? You just can't pin this damn show down. Good. Um, right, we're coming up to time. Um, have you, you, as our representative on uh, on the World Wide Web, um, how's your interactions been lately? They've been pretty good. They've been pretty good. John Freeman, thank you, John Freeman of DownTheTubes.net. That's DownTheTubes.net. Constantly supporting British comic creators in particular and other people as well. And he did us a really nice blog post about the show, which was very much appreciated. And I think might be the reason that we might have 35 people who pressed play but didn't perhaps listen to the end of our podcast. But thank you to those 35 listeners that pressed play. Yes, exactly. Well, I don't know. Someone told me that if, if they show up on SoundCloud, it means they listen to the end. Oh, does it? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. I I'll, have to, I'll have to dig out. If, <laughs> if, we, go, if we ever go pro, we'll get, we'll get more detailed stats, I was being told last week. So. Um, we had Jonathan Wilkins, who I wanted to mention, who's the editor of Star Wars Insider, who mm-hmm. retweeted us and had a bit of interaction with. And what was lovely about that was I, I actually thought he thought we were someone else. Because I was like, oh, thanks for the retweet. And he was like, oh, no worries, I love your stuff. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> really? How have you heard of us? And he, you know, expecting him to go, oh, I thought you were an actor or something, you know. Um, but it turns out he just heard he just heard from us from other Who people. Oh, fantastic! So that's good. We're, we're, it, it sounds like we're we're sort of yeah, yeah. And then finally, interested. as usual, he may get a mention in every episode. Daniel Harper has been extraordinarily kind as ever. Um, he, we had a little back and forth on Twitter. He said he liked the show. Shall I read the tweets? Yeah, yeah. Pertinent things because last time we were talking about um, Davros the Daleks, monsters and monstrosity. Oh yes, uh, you were talking about um, why Davros didn't grow his legs back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said. Daniel Daniel said, thanks so much for the kind words about Oi Spaceman and in particular our full circle discussion on episode three. Um, No worries, Daniel, it was amazing. Um, On Davros, I always figured the reason he didn't engineer himself a new body is because, frankly, he couldn't give less of an F-U-C-K. To misquote, at Great Dismal, the flesh is meat. Davros has a hum higher concerns than his own biology comfort. Davros as a disabled character and disabled characters as monsters in who is something we'll get into when we get to Caves of Androzani. In any case, great discussion and I'm enjoying the extended format. Then again, I would. I'll give you a shout out on a future episode. Look forward to that and uh, look forward to the Caves of Androzani episode because I think well, something we didn't pick up on is uh, Shara's Jack is a, is a disfigured character. Uh, yeah. That'll be interesting to see what um, what Daniel talks about on that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's an upcoming episode of uh, Oi Spaceman, Space uh, which is a great podcast. Um, yeah, it's oispaceman.libsyn.com com, which pre- presumably is oispaceman.libsyn.com with yes, that's a, why that's... Um, and they've just done 
Well, there's loads of stuff sitting up there. That I, think, me... I think any of those are worth listening to, to be honest. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I listened. I actually listened. <coughs> You're all right, mate. Yeah. I actually listened to the Deep Breath podcast after watching Deep Breath again. I caught it on TV, and I very much enjoyed I enjoyed it more having just watched the episode. So it is worth watching the story if you can find the time. Uh, right, thank you very much for listening and join us next time that we're never cruel or cowardly. Bye. If you've got something to say about never cruel or cowardly and we welcome feedback of any kind, then please contact the show via email at nevercruelorcowardly42 at gmail.com or via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at never underscore cruel. Please also indicate in your email or tweet if you're happy for us to read it out on air.